I will be reading from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Sorry, not my best first word, clearing my throat. I apologize for that. Thank you, Eugene, and uh, the rest of you for leading us this morning. Uh, Would you pray with me before we get started? Gracious and holy God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love and your mercy that you have given us, the grace that you have shown us through your son, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he has given to us on our behalf, so that we could be reconciled to you, holy and righteous, without a single blemish when we stand before you. That is awesome. So God, as we open up your word this morning and and we we just learn from you, we just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to everything that you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption. Glad to see you here this morning. Uh, We are starting the second... uh, portion, can't say half, but portion of our faithful series, and the study guides are available for that uh, back at the uh, Connect desk, and they are $5 a piece if you buy them in the um, hard copy form. You can also download them for free uh, off of the website, redemptionaz.com. Seems to me that uh, as I've been wandering around in culture lately that a a new favorite saying that people are using is spoiler alert, so I want to be cool. So here's my spoiler alert. We're going to talk about Jesus this morning. So, and by the way, here's another spoiler alert, f- alert for you. God always wins, okay? So there you go. Um, we have been studying this series called Faithful, and for the first four weeks, we looked at the life of Joseph at the end of Genesis, the last 14 chapters of Genesis. And now we look at the first six chapters of Daniel. And so we're going to be studying the, the person of, of Daniel But really, we're going to be studying the character of God as it is expressed in Daniel. Uh, We need to remember that that God is really the main character in this series. And what we're looking at in terms of faithfulness is uh, two types of faithfulness. The faithfulness that God has for us, but also the faithfulness that we can have for him because he is faithful uh, to us. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, I will tell you that... um, It'll take us a few minutes to get to the text this morning, but don't worry, we will be getting to the text. You can turn to Daniel chapter 1 if you want to get started. Uh, I just have some groundwork to to lay. That's page 478 if you're using the Pew Bibles. Uh, We'll also be uh, spending a little bit of time in John chapter 17 and in in Jeremiah 29 today. Uh, But let me start by asking this question, and then I'm going to lay some groundwork with with some definitions that I think we need. Have you ever had trouble understanding the world around you. 
You ever had trouble understanding the world around you? We all experience that from time to time. So what I want to do is talk a lot about culture and, and how that's defined and some terms that are related to that as we get into this because the story of Daniel has a lot to do with culture and, and sort of uh, the clash of cultures if you want to use uh, that sort of a term. So first of all, let me define culture. And by the way, if you're interested in the definitions that I'm using for these uh, five uh, words, you know, some of you are going to try to write them down. I'm going to go too fast for that. If you're interested in them, just email me and I'll send them to you. I'm used to doing that. Uh, or Stephanie might even post them on the website. So you don't need to write them down. Just hang in there and, and you can get them later if you need them. So here's the definition of culture. It's the relatively specialized elements and lifestyle of a group of people. It's the grid of acceptable systems, symbols, and behaviors of a people group. Now, for year, years and years and years, I mean, for millennia, culture was really defined by uh, three primarily large categories, and that would be nation, race, and ethnicity. That was the bulk of the way we looked at culture. But now, in the last 50 years, cultures have become uh, much, more, uh, much smaller buckets and much more refined. They're defined sometimes by neighborhoods or even more specifically and more often by the word communities. And so now we have things like gang culture. We have gay culture. We have the social media culture, hashtag Twitter. We have biker culture. We have cyclist culture. We have running culture, for those of you that are runners. But then there's actually nuances in that. There, are, there is a culture for marathoners, but then there's a whole separate culture for ultra-marathoners. Um, I, I didn't even realize how different we were until I read the book Born to Run, which is not a book about Bruce Springsteen. It's about ultra-marathon runners. Um, there's rural culture, there's farm culture. When I was in high school, our high school was specifically divided. It, there weren't an, it wasn't written down anywhere. It was just well known by all the high school students. Our high school was specifically divided into two separate groups. There were the jocks and the druggies. And if you didn't fit into either one of those, you were just seen as weird by everybody else, okay? But you were either a jock, jock or a, a druggie. And if you were a jock and a druggie, you always hid the druggie part of it, okay? And then understand that there are church cultures as well. We have church cultures all the time. A every church you walk into has a different culture, and we're very protective of those cultures, I have found. And we like to talk about how our culture is superior to everybody else's church. Here, here's something interesting. The first time I ever attended uh, Redemption Arcadia, I come out of a church background. Every church I have ever been to in my life after every song, you clap, okay? And, and, and so, and even, even, if, even if nobody really wants to clap, you kind of get that sort of, yeah, okay. And then they move on to the next song. Here, after you guys finished the very first song, I was kind of like, nobody claps here. And that's fine. I'm, it's, it's, not, it's just an observation. I actually like it a lot now. I, I think it saves a lot of time, actually. But there is differences between between, you know, cultures in churches, okay? So culture is an interesting study. Here's a word, enculturation. N, uh, uh, N is the prefix meaning from or out of. Enculturation is cultural customs passed from one generation to the next by the family, neighborhood, school, marketplace, and religious organization of that person. All of us experience enculturation. It's the ways in which we are formed by our 
uh, environment that we uh, spend all of our life in. Then there's something called acculturation. So a, the prefix meaning against or opposed to. Acculturation is receiving culture as an outsider in a new host culture. It's the process by which a person's culture is modified or changed through contact with another culture. Some of us know this, accult acculturation, also as assimilation. It's when we navigate a new culture that we have just entered. And this can be intimidating, it can be fun, it can be challenging, but it can also be invigorating. Um, it's the new Arizona State University graduate student who has lived her whole life in Seoul, Korea. She gets accepted to ASU grad school, and she flies here, gets off the plane, and then ends up in Tempe for the next two or three years. She has to go through assimilation or acculturation. And I will tell you that research has clearly shown that younger and more educated people have a much easier time with acculturation and assimilation. They just do. And you probably have kind of experienced that a little bit. And then, and then this is, I think, very interesting. It's kind of the reverse of acculturation where we specifically go out and go into a new culture. It seems that God is more and more bringing the world to us here in America. Have you noticed that? Uh, as a result, we are experiencing acculturation right here in our homes without ever having to leave. And we might as well just get used to that. It's kind of like God is saying, listen, if you won't go, I'll bring them to you. That's just the way it's going to be, and you're going to have to get used to that. Second to the last one, culture shock. Anybody ever heard that term before? A uh, popular book was named that, I think, in the 70s. Culture shock is the adverse psychological reaction that may result from being placed in a culture very different than the culture we are accustomed to. So this is the child that was born and raised in Gila Bend, Arizona, and the only time they ever experienced the big city was when uh, maybe once a year they would come up and go back to school shopping at Arrowhead Town Center or something, and then they would go back to Gila Bend. But then they turn 18, and they decide that they need to go to New York City. And so they come up to Sky Harbor Airport. They get on a plane. They land at LaGuardia, and, and now they're going into Manhattan. The cab ride alone from LaGuardia to Manhattan is going to be culture shock uh, for that person from Gila Bend. But then everything about Manhattan, sh that person is going to experience some level of, of shock. Here's the last one, ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is the tendency to evaluate the values, beliefs, and behaviors of your own culture as more positive, superior, logical, and natural than those of other cultures. And do not buy the lie. You and I are all ethnocentrists to some degree. And the more and more politically correct it has become, I have discovered and research has shown, the more and more politically correct it has become to not be an ethnocentrist, it seems as though the more ethnocentristic we have become in our culture. It seems as though the more we talk about trying not to define ourselves as superior to other cultures, the more we are finding ways in which we are different from other cultures and pointing those things out. And that has created quite a bit of conflict and tension just about anywhere you go. So here we go. Daniel chapter 1 is all about all of these cultural uh, issues and terms that I've just described to you. Let me give you a little bit of historical background to Daniel. You'll need it to help navigate your way through the story. And the historical setting is one of the most fascinating in the Bible. I could personally get lost in it. I could spend a couple of hours talking about it. I'm going to do it in about three minutes, and so I would encourage you to go and look at this stuff. It's easy to read. I graduated from North High School, so if I can read it, you can read it and understand it, and it's very helpful. 
but essentially the events in the book of Daniel take place roughly from 604 B.C. to 520 B.C. Understand that prior to that, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel was a united nation with 12 tribes. Then in 931 B.C., after their third king had died, Solomon, uh, the, the nation split into two and it became a divided kingdom. Israel to the north with ten tribes, Judah to the south with two tribes, and Judah retained uh, the city of Jerusalem. And as each of these two kingdoms walked further and further and further away from God, even though the prophets were warning them that they were doing this, even though the prophets were telling them they were supposed to be a light to the nations, not turn themselves inward on themselves, which is what they were doing, the further they walked away from that, the sooner the uh, impending judgment by God was coming as expressed through military might of other cities, uh, other, other uh, uh, nations. And so in 721 BC, about 200 years after the split occurred, the Assyrians came in from the north and conquered Israel, the ten tribes, and then a, a, a little bit more than 500 years later, in 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came in, essentially from the east and then from the north, and they conquered uh, Judah and, and absolutely devastated and ravaged the place. Now, one of the things that's interesting to study is the, is the um, strategies that each of these nations had for their conquered people. The Assyrians decided that they would leave all of the people that they had conquered in Israel, but they would bring in other Assyrians and they would start to mix and mingle together. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a different strategy. He decided in 605 on the first uh, invasion of, of, of Judah and Jerusalem, he decided to take 70,000 Israelites back to Babylon, 750 miles to the east uh, with him and had them set up uh, shop there. He left plenty of Jews in Judah as well. That was Jeremiah watching everything that's going on, but he took 70,000 with him, and Daniel and his friends were among those uh, who were taken back to Babylon. And understand, the, 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 the capital, the Babylonian city, is actually about uh, was actually about 30 miles from where Baghdad is. I'm talking about Baghdad, Iraq, not Arizona. So it's about 30 miles from, from Baghdad, uh, Iraq. So let's dive in. Daniel chapter 1. This is what uh, Eugene just read. We'll go a little bit further. We'll go to verse 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, which would be Marduk, uh, but he had other gods as well, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, that's a great name, Ashpenaz. If Jackie and I ever had another child and it was a boy, that's first on my list. Ashpenaz Switzer, that would be awesome. So Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, he commanded him to bring some, uh, bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, listening, and uh, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the language and uh, literature and language of the Chaldeans. This word Chaldeans can interp be interpreted a, a number of different ways. It can generally mean Babylonians, but it specifically, I think, means um, the 
the type of Babylonian that is into astrology and magic and divining, things like that. So it's, it's, it's certainly a Babylonian, but it's, it's a Babylonian who's deeply entrenched in the culture of astrology in Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. He called Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Meshach, he called uh, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. And if, you've, if you're familiar with Veggie Tales, you know that that's Rakshak and Benny, okay? So... I want you to notice right off the bat, this is a tragic thing that these, Babylon, these uh, Jew, uh, Jews have been carried off into Babylon, and war is always a tragic and, and very difficult thing to encounter, but read those verses and notice who did this. It was God who did this. Nebuchadnezzar was really just uh, a tool being used by God. And, and the, uh, the people living in Judah had been warned for years that this was going to happen. So we have to understand God's sovereignty is all over this story. This is a story primarily about God, not primarily about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, although they play important roles. The other thing we have to understand is that these boys that we're talking about here are essentially 13 or 14 years old at this time. That's really important to remember. Um, they're, they're fairly mature for their age, and, and that's something that was a part of their Jewish culture as well. Uh, these boys were expected to, be, to mature quickly in certain areas, and they were very mature for their age. And obviously the thing that we have here in the first seven verses is going to be, and again, I, I'm not sure if this is the right term, but I'm using it, it's sort of a clash of cultures. You have the Babylonian uh, culture uh, clashing with the Israelite culture, and these boys are going to experience some culture shock. Now, let me just unpack very quickly for you some categories today that we find uh, when, when we run into different cultures, we find issues with sometimes, and some of these categories were prevalent there, and you can see them in the text as well. First of all, cultures differ in how we value and practice family, and obviously these boys have been ripped from their family, so that's a problem. The Babylonians did not uh, value their families the way they did. Uh, cultures can differ in work ethic. Cultures can differ in dress, how we dress. This seems to me to be kind of a small thing, but we get really riled up sometimes about the way people dress, all the way from headdress down to um, our, our shoes. You know, in some Asian cultures, it's, it's kind of offensive if you don't take your shoes off before you enter a dwelling. That's also true of some Midwestern houses in the United States, I've discovered when I didn't take off my shoes in a house in, say, Kansas City or something like that. Um, also, cultures differ in how we wear our facial hair and other body accessories, so tattoos, piercings, engagings, all of that stuff can be different. Food is different from culture and cult to culture, and we see the food issue coming up prominently here. Certainly, language is a huge issue. This morning, as I'm getting ready, here pops this two-minute advertisement, great advertisement for Rosetta Stone, and they're saying, listen, if you really want to enter somebody else's culture with confidence, you got to buy Rosetta Stone so you can speak the language. Now, this language deal was certainly an issue with Joseph. Remember when we went through all of that? And it's going to be an issue here in Babylon as well. 
And of course, in America, we're struggling with this too. We have some people who are in the English-only camp and other people who are in the camp of, hey, listen, we got to start being a little bit more uh, multilingual in the United States. And then part of language is the names. We see that with Daniel and his boys. They get renamed, and, and they get renamed without any choice in the matter by the Babylonians, and this would have been a huge cultural shift for them because in the Israelite culture, your name was your identity. It was a very important, your name was really important and you held it near and dear. They were forced into changing their names as part of this training to be able to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. I will tell you that over my life, especially being born and raised in Arizona, I've had the opportunity to hang out a lot in different Hispanic cultures, and as I've done that, more than half the time, I will tell you that my name, uh, they didn't force this on me, they just, my name is Frank, and so they just started calling me Pancho, which is Frank in, in Spanish, and, and I would suggest to you that they did it actually more as, as a way of endearing uh, me to them, it was more of a way of showing acceptance than anything else, it was never forced upon me like it was here, but my name routinely gets changed in Hispanic cultures uh, to um, uh, Pancho. And then finally, uh, cultures differ in the way we worship and celebrate. And if you notice, in, again, in these first few verses, the language of the gods in these verses. So you can tell there's going to be some, some conflict and some, uh, some problems in, in this area, too. And of course, in America, we are having this battle as well. We've been having this conversation for a century now uh, about who's God and what gods and are there gods and how is that going to work. And you can talk about God as long as you don't mention Jesus and things like that. So we've been dealing with this as well. And let me say this. Nebuchadnezzar's behavior is certainly ethnocentristic, but the Jews also would have had an ethnocentristic attitude towards the Babylonians because they would have seen their culture as barbarian and inferior to theirs. Okay, so verses 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. This food and the wine that, that the king was, was, was uh, asking them to eat was most likely sacrificed to his gods first, to Nebuchadnezzar's gods first, and to a Jew, that was anathema. They are not supposed to eat any kind of food or drink anything that had anything to do with sacrificing to foreign gods. And so Daniel, this is where Daniel decides to take uh, a stand. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. By the way, um, uh, kings, ancient kings back then always surrounded themselves. The guys that worked for them, th they almost always made sure that they were eunuchs. And if you're not sure what that is, you can Google it later, but you'll probably know what it is after I explain this to you. The reason they did that was because they were very concerned about their wife or wives, depending on you know, what kind of, of harem they might have. They wanted to make sure that nobody messed around with their wives. No hanky-panky going on in the king's court while they were off, off doing king stuff and conquering nations, okay? So they always surrounded themselves with eunuchs. So here's the chief of the eunuchs talking to Daniel. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. There's that sovereignty of God again. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, Listen, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see you in worse condition than the youths who are of, a, of your own age? In other words, Daniel, you have to eat this food because if you start withering away compared to these other guys, 
I'm going to get in trouble with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going to get mad at you. He's going to get mad at me. So I fear for my king. Uh, so that you would endanger my head with the king. So Daniel, having compassion for this guy, even though they are of different cultures, starts to think, okay, maybe we can work this out. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and, and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's setting up a contest of sorts, okay? So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. There must have been a lot of butter on those vegetables, okay? So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Right out of the gate, I want to just mention this. Um, uh, many people think that this is uh, a, a prescription from Scripture that we should all be, be, be vegetarians, and that's not true, so relax on that. There are other places where, like Peter in chapter, um, I think it's chapter thir 12 or 13 of Acts, where, you know, uh, the sheet drops and there's pork chops and, you know, all that stuff uh, ready to eat. So just, just settle down on that. Um, one other thing, again, I want to hit, again, Look again at God's role in this. God gave favor for Daniel to these guys. God is the person who is actively at work throughout this, and I he hesitate to use the word story, throughout this history. And so it's very important for us to understand that. And, and in the midst of that, I want to mention three things that I do really admire about Daniel. If you want to look at Daniel's character in this chapter, there's three things right out of the gate that I admire. I admire his on-the-spot creativity. I will tell you, I'm one of those people who is much, much better at three hours after an important confrontation realizing what I should have said or done, okay? I'm really good at that, okay? I'm very rarely just right on top of it in the moment, okay? But here you go. we got to remember, this wasn't Daniel's creativity. Specifically, it said that God gave Daniel this ability. we got to remember that. And, and so if I don't have that creativity, maybe my connection with God could be improved a little bit through prayer, through Bible study, those kinds of things. The second thing I admire is his faithfulness. Okay, he's 13 years old. He's 750 miles away from home, and there's no Internet. There's no video. He's not going to end up on YouTube sitting at the king's table eating a lamb chop, okay? That's not going to happen. He could have very easily caved in. And there was probably tremendous pressure for him to cave in, yet he stood his ground. You have to admire his faithfulness and steadfastness. And then third, you have to admire his willingness to suffer the consequences of his stand. He was willing to lose and then suffer the consequences of losing in his steadfast faithfulness. Those are things that I all really admire. And I, wanna, I want you to understand, these last two, faithfulness and a willingness to suffer the consequences, really are bolstered if we're willing to do prayer and introspection in those two areas. I just mentioned that. That is so important. We should pray. We should do self 
analysis and self-evaluation and introspection and maybe even invite trusted people to step into our lives and help us with that as well so that we can be better prepared, so it'll bolster our faith, so we will recognize that the consequences of standing for our faith are almost never as dire as we think they might be. And, and this is a big area for me. I will tell you, this is one of the reasons why I like to teach at Paradise Valley Community College because I get a first-hand bird's-eye view of what the next generation is dealing with and having to stand up for and having to live in consequences with. And so I get a first-hand view of that. This is why I like to engage with people younger than I am. This is why I like to engage with people who are older than I am as well and see the comparative differences of what everybody's going through. So many of us are just are so narcissistic that we think the only reality is what's happening to us. And the fact is, is that reality is what's happening to everybody else at their stage of life. And interacting with them is really important. And this is one of the reasons why I love Redemption Arcadia, because we got you all here. There is no one particular demographic that is represented here. So Daniel chapter 1 calls us to evaluate some important things. Two things. Number one, he calls us, uh, this, this chapter calls us to evaluate our approach to culture. And the basic question is this, when it comes to our culture, even and especially when we are uncomfortable with our culture, do we engage our culture or do we stand back and criticize our culture? I will tell you, it is easy to criticize the culture, but it's hard work to engage the culture. But what did Jesus tell us to do? He said, you've got to engage the culture. You've got to enter the culture. You should be in the world, not of the world. You should go, and as you are going, and as you are living your life, you are to make disciples and baptize them and teach them all that I have commanded you. And I will tell you, the long-term results of engaging, even though it's harder work, are awesome and a lot more fun than criticizing and separating yourself from the culture. The second thing we need to evaluate is our identity in Christ. The greatest hindrance to engaging our culture for the people of the church and, and to engage them with the gospel is, in fact, fear. We're just afraid. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of embarrassment. We're afraid of conflict. But Jesus is really the antidote to fear. Jesus is telling us, you're right. You should be scared if you're just trying to do this on your own power because you can't. But with the Holy Spirit living in you, the power of the resurrected Christ, then you can engage this culture with no fear. More than 500 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, do not be afraid. It's his favorite command to us. Do not be afraid. Now understand, Daniel and his boys were aliens in a completely different culture. And one of the things I want us to see today is that as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, we are also aliens in our culture. Turn to page um, 587. This is John 17. Turn to John chapter 17. And I want to show you again what Jesus says about you and I as followers of Christ and how we are to enter the culture and not walk away from the culture. John 17. So here you go. It's the last night of Jesus' life. It's right before his, his um, bogus trial and his crucifixion. It's right before he's going to uh, be executed. 
and he's with his disciples, and he's taught them for three chapters, and now he prays for them, and he prays for us today. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So often, we are trying, you and I, even as Christians, we are trying to find our life, our redemption, and our purpose in the cultural choices that we make and the identities that we construct as a result of those cultural choices. But this verse right here and the verses that follow clearly show us that our identity and our culture is not in this worldly stuff, although it's fun to engage and fun to be a part of it. It's not in this worldly stuff, but our culture, our identity is in Christ. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, your citizenship is not here in the world, but rather your citizenship is where? In heaven. You are an alien in this world. You are an alien in this culture. So then look at John 17, 11 through 19. Jesus is praying, but listen to his prayer. It's instructive. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. They may be unified, even as we are young. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, Judas. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may know my joy, fulfilled, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Do you see that? We are not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. There are Christians all over the place who are praying that God would just remove them from this culture that they don't understand and they don't like and it's scary and intimidating. And Jesus is saying right here, no. You don't get to move to Montana. By the way, Montana has a culture all its own, and I think it's scarier than Phoenix. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out. Send them in, but protect them. Keep them from Satan. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I want to show you four characteristics of the person whose identity is in Christ as they are being sent into the world according to this prayer. Characteristic number one, we have joy. We are joyful people. Understand, there's a big difference between joy and happiness. Most of us walk around saying we want to be happy, and we're frustrated because we're not always happy. God tells us that in Christ, we can always be joyful. Why is that? It's because happiness is dependent upon our circumstances, which go like this, but joy is dependent upon our relationship with Christ, which is always like this. It's the one constant in the midst of all the waves of our lives. So God constantly calls us to be filled with joy, not happy. One person says it this way. This is a little aggressive, but he's trying to get a point across. 
God isn't the least bit concerned about whether or not you're happy. He wants you joyful because that joy is based on your relationship with Jesus. Second of all, uh, one of our characteristics is that we are people of the Word, the Bible. This is our basis for life and truth and application. I will tell you, I am not a biblicist. I do not worship at the altar of the Bible, but it's really integral to who I am. And I find identity in that because those are God's words and his instruction to us. The third thing, we are protected. Again, I run into so many Christians who would like to separate themselves from the culture because it's just too hard to deal with it. Well, I'm telling you, God is saying that's not what you're supposed to do. God keeps bringing the world to us. I've already said that. We're not going to be able to escape it. The more we separate, he's just going to keep bringing people to us that we have to, we have to engage and second of all, Jesus is specifically often sending us. He sends us in. Jesus just sends us in. But the great thing about Jesus sending us in is that he is with us. Right before this prayer, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome this world. And then he goes into this prayer. It's as if he's saying, listen, you can't miss. I'm going to be with you. And then the fourth thing is that we are sanctified. What does sanctified mean? In this context, it essentially means we are set apart to serve others. We are set apart to minister to others. Our journey with Jesus is not a spectator sport. If you are a Christian but you are sitting on the sidelines, it's time for you to get your butt in the game. And we got lots of places around redemption where you can do that. It's not a spectator sport. Before we finish off with Daniel, now turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. I want to show you, again, even in the Old Testament, how important this concept of being sent into the culture and engaging the culture is. Jeremiah chapter 29, it's page 425 in the Pew Bibles. This is Jeremiah talking about the Babylonian exiles now. He's talking specifically in the historical context of these 70,000 people being in Babylon. Those 70,000 people are there weeping and wailing and lamenting the terrible, uh, terrible circumstances that they're living under. How can we sing praises to our God in this place? How can we do that? And Jeremiah answers them in Jeremiah chapter 29. Verse 1 says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now jump down to verse 4. We'll read verses 4 through 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Again, notice who sent the Jews into exile. God, not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was just the tool. But here's what he says to those exiles who are in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may be bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Here's what he's saying. You're not leaving Babylon anytime soon. You're not leaving Phoenix anytime soon. And if you do, you're just going to go to some other place where God is going to send you into the culture. 
We're not leaving anytime soon. So settle down, build your houses, have families, get your daughters and sons married off, help them build houses and families, engage in work, the workplace and in the marketplace. And if you are concerned about yourself, you should be concerned about your city because if your city finds welfare, you will find welfare. Do you hear that message that Jeremiah is giving? It applies to us as well today. Uh, verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. In other words, don't listen to the people who are saying to you, Listen, don't worry, God's going to take you out of Arcadia in another six months, and you can go live somewhere else, and it won't be as hard. Don't listen to those people. You're to listen to Jesus. You're to listen to God through Jeremiah telling us that we need to go into our city and we need to be about the welfare of the city because that is where we can find our welfare as well. We will not find welfare running from people who need God. Jonah tried it. It didn't work, if you recall. Now, Daniel, clearly, Jeremiah, clearly, and Jesus, clearly, all three of them, call us to respond to the culture. To, to be in the culture. And they call us to respond to culture not with anger. That's one of the most popular responses to culture that we have today, anger. All you got to do is turn on cable news network somewhere, and it doesn't matter if it's MSNBC or Fox, everybody's angry, okay? They call us not to uh, engage the culture by escaping the culture. Again, that's a separatist attitude, very popular though. If I could just move here, I wouldn't have to put up with those people. Okay, but rather that he calls us to engage the culture, to be in the culture, to be a light to the nations, to be a light to these cultures. And understand, we're not there to reform the culture and make it look like us. We're there to be a redeeming agent in the culture. That's a really important thing to understand. Um, Larry Osborne, in his book, um, uh, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, writes a, a lot about this. He says one of the biggest problems that Christians have is that we prioritize God and then family and then work and then whatever, and we think we've done a good job by prioritizing God. And he says that's a problem because if we have a list like that, it tends to make us think that once we've done our God thing, we're done with God, and then we can move on to our family, and then we can move on to work, and then we can move on to the sons or whatever it is. He says instead reorient your life so that God, Jesus Christ, is at the center of your life, and everything else is revolving around that. See, Jesus transcends your life. He is not a priority in your life. He transcends it. He is involved in all of that. Turn back to Daniel. We'll look at those last five verses, 17 through 21. So these guys ended up being okay. As for these four youths, God gave them learning. Again, there's God. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were uh, in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King 
Cyrus. I want you to notice as we close, Daniel and his boys were not disengaged from the culture. They were not mediocre in the culture. And they were not warriors against the culture. Instead, as followers of the living God, they engaged the culture and they were seen by the people in the culture as desirable. People liked them. They wanted to be around them. The king valued them. And here's the key to that. Their faith was not a hindrance to them in their culture and marketplace, but rather it enhanced their mission, life, and practice in the marketplace. Your faith is not a liability in the marketplace. Some of you think it is. It's not. It's an asset. You just need to figure, out, figure it out. And you need to figure out, part of the reason you've got, you're kind of messed up on that is that you think it's by the power of you that you're going to be able to do this. And it's not. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You've got to give that up. Uh, for 10 years, I led a, 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 a medium-sized family business that had 200 employees. And I will just tell you, this is my experience, okay? So I'm just telling you my experience, but here is my experience with Christian employees, okay? They were either the best employees we had, the most reliable, the hardest working, or what? They were the worst. They, and, and they used their Christianity as an excuse to slough off and walk around handing out tracts. You're there to work, but in that work, you can still work to God and engage people. Read Colossians 3 if you want a little help on that, okay? I will tell you, though, we didn't have any Christians that were in the middle. They were either the best or the worst. That's just been my experience with Christians. And I was a Christian at the time. So I was very sensitive to all of that. See, like I said already once before, I want you to get this. The culture of Christ transcends race, transcends ethnicity, it transcends language. It transcends dress. It transcends food. And it transcends the marketplace. It's not an add-on, and it's not a priority. It's at the center. And it should be at the center of our lives, permeating and waving out into all parts of our lives. Listen to this. Daniel treats all people as image-bearers of God. Every person, whether they're a Babylonian or a Jew, or a Persian later on, it doesn't matter. He treats every single person as an image bearer of God. And theologically, he's correct, right? Read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, okay? And my question is this. Why do we focus so much on what makes us different instead of the ways that we are the same, which is that we are all image bearers of God? I think the reason is that in ourselves, in and of ourselves, in our fallen, self-centered, self-interest-only state, we can't. We don't have the ability in our fallen selves to look at other people and find what we have in common, that we were both created in the image of God. Instead, we are driven by sin to find what makes us different and then stand back and start criticizing it and, and, and use it as a, as a wedge between us. We are repeatedly shown through the Gospels and through the New Testament letters that the only way we can do this to engage with people with respect and to see them as image bearers of God first and foremost is by the wisdom and love that Christ has in us. That's the way that we do it. 
Jesus was that kind of person. He was always looking for the image bearer, not the sinner. That's why he was famous for hanging out with people who were different than he was. He hung out with sinners and prostitutes, with cheaters and adulterers. Daniel also treats all people as image bearers of God. Big reason why he thrived in his context in Babylon. As a 13-year-old boy. And I would suggest that's our call too. Let me pray and we'll have our time of response as Sean comes up to lead us in that. God, thank you for challenging us the way you do in Daniel. Thank you for helping us to understand your sovereignty, your faithfulness, and the fact that we are all image bearers of you, no matter our culture, no matter our backgrounds, and that we can engage. We are called by Christ to engage. And so I pray that we would respond as people who engage, not people who stand away or people who criticize. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.